Good morning. Our texts this morning are found in the Old Testament book of Job, chapter 5, and also in chapter 6. His friend says, call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool. Envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool take root. And suddenly his house is cursed. His children are far from safety. They're crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among the thorns. And the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship doesn't spring from the soil, nor does trouble grow from the ground. Yet, man is born to trouble just as surely as as sparks fly upward. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed, and all my misery be placed on the scales, it surely would outweigh the sands of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks its poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food even eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. That I might have my request. That God would grant what I hope for. That God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. I invite you to open your Bibles with me if you have them to Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. We're actually going to work our way through four chapters this morning, believe it or not, so we'll get started. If you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we are uh, in a series called Life in Utz. Uh, It's a study of uh, Job's journey through suffering, and if you missed last week's uh, introduction, I encourage you to go online and get all the details, but essentially, uh, we learned last week that Job was a very wealthy man uh, with a very big family living in the ancient Near East. Uh, He was extremely devout. He was a pillar of the community. Uh, He was morally upright. He shunned evil. Uh, He revered, loved, worshipped, served God faithfully. Uh, But one day, quite suddenly, um, most everything Job had uh, had was taken away from him. Uh, Inexplicably, he lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his possessions. He lost his status in the community. And he had absolutely no idea why. You know, why such tragedy had come upon him. And that's part of what makes Job's story so relevant for us today because more often than not, when suffering enters our experience, um, we struggle, right, with the same question of why. Why, why this? Why that? Why him? Why her? Why, um, why now? Why me? And what we learned in the opening chapter of the book is that in the face of inexplicable suffering, we need to avoid simplistic answers. And with humility, recognize that there are things in this world, in this universe, that we, we just don't and can't fully comprehend. Um, life is complicated, uh, physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually complicated. And so there are times that we have to embrace the mystery. We have to embrace the reality of not having all the answers. And yet through it all, as God's people choose to acknowledge God's grace in our lives. And that's really how Job 
initially responds to his suffering. He says, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. In short, he, everything, he says, everything I have in this world is really not mine to begin with. It's, it's, it's all on loan for God. I didn't bring it in with me. I can't take it out with me. God has allowed me to have all these, these wonderful and enjoy all these wonderful things in life, all of them uh, a measure of his grace. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, that's just the beginning of the story. And so I want to pick up uh, kind of where we left off last week and look at how Job continues uh, to move forward in life. And in practical terms, how does he get through the pain? And the way that he, he does it is he finds and experiences comfort. But where does Job's comfort come from? And that's what I want to talk about specifically. Before we do, let's pray. Our Father, thank you again for the beauty of the day, a reminder of your goodness, a reminder that every breath we take, every moment we live uh, is, a, is a measure of your grace. And so I pray, Lord, that in the time we have together here, um, that you would remove distractions that would keep us from hearing uh, truth about you, truth about life, uh, truth about handling the challenges uh, that we experience in this world. And so uh, speak to us <clears throat> by the power of your spirit at work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the other day I was driving down a street and, um, and I, was, I was paying attention to what was going on. I was not peeling a banana or putting on makeup or reading the paper or texting. Those are things I've seen people doing, <laughs> writing around this week. But I was, I was paying attention, but not necessarily paying attention to the surface of the road. And suddenly I hit this big construction divot. And the, you know, my car just kind of rattled around me. I'm like, whoa, you know, but I made it through and I realized, okay, everything's okay, I think, um, because although I'm no mechanic, uh, I have a pretty good shock absorber system in the car. So when I hit unexpected uh, bumps, uh, in the road, while it doesn't uh, eliminate the bump, it does keep the car from being shaken to pieces. And that made me think about how, in a way, life is very similar. When suffering hits us, we all need a source of comfort to act as a kind of shock absorber so that the experience doesn't shake us to pieces and destroy us. And that was, you know, that was true for Job. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of his confusion, he needed you know, he needed some comfort to absorb the shock of it all. Now, as human beings, I think we all, we, we all realize that when facing difficult circumstances, uh, we usually find comfort by way of family and friends, right? We'll, we'll call it relational comfort. And uh, Job had people in his life who tried to console him in his suffering. Uh, unfortunately, as some of us may know through experience, not, not everyone's attempt at comforting others is helpful. Do you know what I'm saying? Job's wife, take, take her for example. She was still alive. And, um, and in chapter two, when along with everything else, Job's health gets taken from him, and he's sitting in a pile of ashes, you know, kind of just mourning and grieving all that's happened, scraping boils on his skin with shards of pottery. She comes up to him and she says, Job, are you still maintaining your integrity? Or put another way, are you still suggesting you've done nothing wrong to deserve this? I mean, obviously, something's not right in your life. Look at you. You must have sinned. You must have done something bad for God to punish you this way. And then, uh, you know, not wanting her husband to continue to suffer, she, she tells him, so, look, just get it over with. You know, curse God and die. 
And what's interesting to me is that Job's response, uh, I think, reveals a, a very well-balanced, rational, and theological understanding of life and suffering. Because he says to her, he says, look, you're talking like a foolish woman. Now notice, he doesn't say you are a foolish woman. He has good conflict resolution skills, you know. He, he's, he's been married for a while. So he says, it's not that you are a foolish woman, honey, but you, you, are, you are talking like a foolish person. He says, shall we accept only good from God and not trouble? Translation, he says, look, my suffering doesn't mean I've done something wrong before God. You know, in life, sometimes good things happen, sometimes bad things happen. Are we only going to love and serve God when things are going well for us? That's a pretty important question. Job says, not me. That's not true of me. I maintain my innocence and I will stay true to God no matter what bad things come my way. And the text says that in all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. You know, he refused to curse God uh, and turn from God, even in the midst of tremendous pain and, and even at the advice of his wife. Job also had some friends who tried to provide um, comfort for him, three guys named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. At the end of chapter two, we're told that when Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that come upon him, they, d- they agreed together they were gonna go to Job, they're gonna sympathize with him, and they were gonna comfort him. And initially, uh, they're, they're helpful because initially, they just sit with Job they, for a week. They don't say a word. They just sit quietly, they listen as, as Job cries out in pain and agony and in, all through chapter three says things like, uh, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace, I'd be asleep and at rest, which is just a poetic way of saying it would have been better if I had not, never been born. Then at least, at least then I, I wouldn't be in such pain and agony right now. And so Job just, he's just pouring out, pouring out his heart and his thoughts and his emotions in front of his friends, and they listen, which is a good thing. The problem comes when they open their mouths and they start voicing their opinions because the comfort they, they offer, the counsel they give is neither helpful nor accurate. But this, this long interaction begins between Job and his friends, and, and it goes from chapter four all the way to chapter 27 with the dialogue just going back and forth and back and forth. And it all starts with this guy, Eliphaz, his friend Eliphaz, whose, whose opinion represents really that of all Job's friends. And in chapter four, verse one, Eliphaz breaks the silence and he says, you know, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? He says, Job, you know, if as a friend, if I say something, are you gonna get mad at me? Well, too bad, because I'm gonna say it anyway. Essentially what he says. And then he goes on, he affirms how Job had been a help and a strength and a support to a whole lot of people. He was just a really good guy, well-liked, well-loved. But then Eliphaz says, but now, man, you're in trouble. You're suffering. So consider now, he says, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. You get what he's saying? He's saying, Job, as I see it, bad things only happen to bad people. He says, dude, man, God is upset with you. You must have done something wrong. He's punishing you. What awful, sinful, twisted thing have you done? And then in chapter 5, 1, he goes on, and Ophaz says, 
Call out if you will, but who will answer you? Resentment kills a fool. Envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. Hardship, Job, does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Here's my, here's my Reiki summary. He says, Job, cry out if you want. Cry he goes, but I, th- I say just, just stop crying because no one's listening. No one's listening. Everybody knows that good and innocent people don't suffer. You are reaping the evil that you have sowed. So figure out what you've done wrong and then fix it. And, and everything will be okay. You know, things with God will be squared up. And then as if speaking for uh, the other friends, he says, look, we've examined this. We've looked at this, and it's true. So hear it and apply it to your life. Apply it to yourself. So here's my question. Uh, Do any of you guys see a problem with what Job's friend was saying to him? And uh, I mean, I see a problem with it. I think it's problematic on a couple levels. First, we're told that these guys set out to sympathize with and comfort Job, right? And yet the comments offered, these sort of veiled indictments, they, they seem callously unsympathetic and anything but comforting. What's even more troubling to me about Eliphaz is that his words and his opinions deny the complexity of life and reduce, it reduces suffering to a, just a simple equation. Do good, God will do good to you. Do bad, he'll make you suffer. And that mentality fits and falls right in line with what we talked about last week in terms of religious moralism, where people who believe in God see their relationship to him as a quid pro quo arrangement. You know, if you, if you perform well, if you're good, all is okay. But if you sin, if you mess up, if you fail to pray enough, to give enough, to serve enough, if you, if you fail to have enough faith, then God is gonna get angry, and he's gonna make you suffer. But see, that is flawed reasoning. It's, it's too simplistic, not to mention unbiblical. You know, the religious leaders and experts in Jesus' day held to the same opinion. They believed the same thing. They promoted this moralistic view on life, and, and a lot of people at the time bought into it. In fact, one day, we're told about how Jesus encounters this man who was blind from birth, and that Jesus eventually heals him. But before he heals him, as they encounter this man, the, the disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's a very moralistic question. And you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. It's more complicated than that. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him, i.e., he says, Jesus says, there's a much deeper, there's much deeper meaning and spiritual purpose behind this man's situation. But here's the deal. The blind guy didn't know that. His parents didn't know why he was born blind. The disciples didn't know why he was blind. The religious guys didn't really know, but they thought they did. They said it was because of somebody's sin. And just as Job didn't know why tragedy had come upon him, his friend Eliphaz says, it's because of your sin. It's because of your sin, Job. Most of you have no idea about this, but two of our band members, two of our um, musicians are sick and fighting serious forms of cancer. And could you imagine if I went up to those men and said, look guys, 
as your friend, I just got to say, I, I know you're suffering, but who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Those who plow evil and sow trouble reap it. There must be sin in your life. I can't imagine ever saying that to them. But see, that's what, that's what religious moralism says. That's what m- religious moralism does. It always lectures. It always rushes to judgment. And here's my concern. What the religious leaders in Jesus' day said about the blind man, what Eliphaz says to Job, is what you hear in a lot of churches today. That if you are sick, you, you, you're, you're not living right. If you're poor, you lack faith. If there's any unexpected trial or trauma in your life, you must be messing up somewhere, somehow, some way. And at worst, God is punishing you. And at best, he's just holding back good things from you. But that is not the case. And to suggest such things is not only hurtful, but represents a very naive view of suffering and fails to recognize the complexity of life and the purposes of God. And here's my overall point. Job receives no comfort from the religious moralism of his wife or his friends. In fact, eventually he says, you are all miserable comforters, all of you. You're just miserable. <laughs> and, and he's right, they were. So where does Job find comfort? Well, he experiences a certain degree of comfort, uh, a certain degree of personal comfort through a number of, a number of things. First, he responds to the words of Eliphaz, his friend, in the beginning of chapter six with emotional and spiritual honesty. Listen to what he says. He says, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. He says, my pain and suffering weighs so heavily on me. It's such a burden. I feel beaten down, which is why I'm just spouting off at times, you know, that it, wouldn't, it would have been best if I had not been born. He goes, I just feel awful. For Job, there is no sugarcoating things, no religious cliches, just raw, honest emotion. And then here's the spiritual honesty in, 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 in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. You see what he's saying? He's saying, it feels like God is against me. It feels like he's upset with it. It feels like he's killing me slowly. Think about it. His friend Eliphaz told him to stop calling out, stop crying, suck it up. But Job doesn't. You know, he, he just honestly and openly grieves and expresses exactly how he feels emotionally, how he feels spiritually. And he prays. You know, his words may not sound necessarily prayerful, but that's what he's doing, especially when he says, uh, in chapter 6, verse 8, he says, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. Uh, in the ancient Near East, kings were never rarely directly addressed. When they were addressed, they were addressed in the third person and someone would come to the king for, for something and they would say, oh, that the king would grant my request. And, and, and that's really what Job is doing. He's praying, he's petitioning God, the great king. And as we just said, he, Job says some hard things. He really does about what he was experiencing, about how he was feeling and how he felt God was treating him. He was upset, he was angry, he was confused. And uh, some people read the text and say, man, Job's comments are so harsh. Harsh, and yet at the end of the book, God commends Job for speaking truth about him and takes issue with his friends for not speaking truth. What is that about? And the way I see it is, uh, yes, 
In his pain, Job absolutely says some hard things. But, but here's the deal. He doesn't just say them about God. He says them to God. He says them to God. He never turns away from God. He never stops praying. He just tells God exactly what he was thinking, exactly how he was feeling. He let God know what he wanted, what he had hoped for. He just lets it all out there. In fact, think about what he asks here in chapter 6. He says, that, oh, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. You get what he's asking, right? He's asking that God would end his suffering by taking his life. And I think it's important to note here that in requesting this, Job is essentially rejecting easy escapism. He rejects suicide as a means to find comfort. You know, experts tell us that nearly 4% of our U.S. population, about 8.3, 8.4 million Americans, have thought of suicide uh, in the past year, with uh, 2.3 million developing a plan to carry it out and about a million people attempting it. Um, Viktor Frankl was a famous Jewish neurologist and psychiatrist who survived three years in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. And uh, while he was in those camps, <clears throat> he observed the behavior of people who were suffering, you know, really suffering, who had lost everything, money, health, family status, and, and people who were facing death every day. And he took notice of the differences between those who survived and those who didn't. And he said that in our most desperate circumstances, he says, as human beings, we need, we need hope in order to go on. We need a comfort beyond our circumstances that suffering and death cannot destroy. He said, because if people have no meaning beyond personal happiness, suffering can lead very quickly to suicide. After he was liberated in 1945, he wrote a classic text um, a book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning, and in it he says, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how, but woe to him who saw no sense to his life, no aim, no purpose, therefore no point in carrying on, no hope, he was soon lost. See, here's the thing about Job. His sense of purpose in life was not wrapped up solely in the things that suffering took away from him, his, his money, his possession, his relationships. For Job, life had a greater meaning, a deeper meaning. And so suicide for him was not an option. Even in the depths of great despair and suffering, Job, Job may have asked God to take his life, but he never for a moment uh, believed he had the right to take his own. He wouldn't do that. And then finally, Job found some comfort in having a clear conscience. You know, he, he says, if God would just let me die, then... He says in chapter 6, verse 10, if God would just let me die, then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. In other words, he says, I, I find joy and comfort knowing that I haven't cursed God or rejected God because of my suffering, at least not yet. So far I've persevered. So far I've stayed strong and faithful and obedient to God. I know he's pleased. I know he loves me. But as I read his words here, I wondered if at this point Job felt like he was... He was sliding, you know what I mean, as if he was starting to weaken and figured, you know, it would be better to lose my life now while I'm still holding on and trusting God than to stay alive longer and suddenly disobey, fail him, and curse him. And what that tells me about Job is that he had an understanding of his own brokenness, his own weaknesses, his own vulnerability, his, his potential to crack in the midst of suffering 
and sin against the holy God he believed in. And frankly, you know, he was a human being. He had every right to think that because at some point or another, everybody cracks. Everybody sins. Everybody fails God. In the Old Testament, the psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? The answer is no one. Because no flawed, finite human being, including the great Job, can live a perfectly obedient life before God. We all crack. You know, we all, we all sin. We all fail to do what God says is right and good and healthy and best for us. Job knew that. He got it. He realized that as, as a human being, as much as anybody else, he had sinful inclinations and limitations, which meant that in the end, his personal comfort, his prayer, his honesty, his clear conscience was not going to be enough. It wouldn't last So where and in what did he find ultimate comfort? He found it in God himself. Later in the book, Job explains it this way. He says, Lord, he says, I know you will not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Those are incredible statements of hope in God's grace and rescue. We're going to talk about those later on in the series, but what really caught my attention this week as I was reading through this is is how how Job says in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, oh, that I might have this request, that God would be willing to crush me. And there's that word crush that kind of jumped from the page, that God would be willing to crush me. And yet God didn't crush his servant Job. However, eventually God would choose to crush another suffering servant, a redeemer who would stand upon the earth, who the prophet Isaiah described as one despised and rejected by humanity, a a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Isaiah says, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. You know, it's interesting to me how Eliphaz, Job's friend, Ask the question, who being truly innocent ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? He says it doesn't happen that way, but he was wrong. Because it would happen and it did happen to Jesus on the cross. The truly innocent was crushed for the guilty. The upright was crushed for the unrighteous. Deity was crushed for humanity. See, hidden within Job's request rests the truth of the Christian message Uh, the good news as Jesus called it. Namely, that it would not be man who'd be crushed for man's sake, but ultimately God himself who is crushed for all of us. As the Apostle Paul puts it in the New Testament, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in in that reality, the reality of a divine redeemer, there is hope, there is comfort for broken, sinful, suffering people like Job, like you, and like me. You know, William Shakespeare wrote, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. His point being that in in this world of ours, bad things happen to people every single day. They do. Suffering plays no favorites. It shows up everywhere. It's unavoidable. It's and its scope and its impact can be overwhelming and incredibly destructive. And for us to avoid thinking or talking about suffering until it hits us 
is a mistake. Because in the midst of pain and confusion of it all, uh, it's really hard to think clearly. I mean, now is the time to think, to decide where our ultimate comfort in life comes from before the suffering hits. You know, many of you know, some of you don't, but I didn't grow up a Christian. You know, I didn't. I had, and so I have, no, I, have a, I have no long-term religious tradition to fall back on. I'm, I'm not um, particularly familiar with all the historic Christian creeds and confessionals and catechisms. But there is one ancient doctrinal statement I've read in the past uh, called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's an expression of faith that was written in 1563 AD. And it's written in such a way that it presents uh, truth, God's truth, through a series of questions and answers for Christians to consider. And the very first thing that the, the, that the statement says, the very first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer reads, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of evil. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the answer that, 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 that the statement offers. The question is, is that the answer we give? Is that true for you? Is it true for me? What is your ultimate comfort in life and death? May your answer be Jesus, the Redeemer, who by God's grace suffered and died to free you from sin and evil and give you life beyond suffering, life beyond the grave. Let's pray. Our Father, I recognize that um, talking about suffering can be a bit of a downer for us, and um, there are some of us perhaps here who'd rather not talk about it, um, who would rather just ignore the topic. But we would do so at our own peril because suffering enters into all of our experiences. At some point or another, it's just, it just reality of life in a broken world. And if we wait to think about suffering, if we wait to discuss it or pro- try to process it in the midst of the confusion and the pain, thinking clearly is very difficult. Instead, it makes more sense. It's wise for us to think through and discuss these matters before suffering hits us. So that when it does, we may be rattled, but we're not shaken to pieces. Our Father, I pray this morning that we would be people who don't look for comfort just in relationships with friends and family, although that can be very helpful, but sometimes maybe not so much, as in Job's case, or look for comfort in personal activities and even spiritual activities, but ultimately to look for comfort from you, our God. And whether things are good or bad, we'll say, we love you and we trust you, and, uh, and we find comfort in knowing Um, that you love us. And so I pray that even now um, that your spirit would come and and pour out a sense of comfort um, in the hearts and minds of your people. In Jesus' name.
I want to thank you all for being with us this morning. And, you know, maybe you're going through some things in life that are just really, really hard. And, um, you, you know, you feel like you're going to crack, you know. Uh, maybe you just need someone to talk with and pray with. And our, some of our prayer team folks will be up here following this service, and they want to make themselves available to you. So uh, if, if you're struggling with some things, you just need to talk to somebody. They're here for you, okay? Um, thanks for coming, and uh, hopefully you're finding this helpful. You know, the idea of suffering is something everybody in the world has questions about, and if we as Christians haven't got our, wrapped our minds around it as best we can, how can we offer answers to the world? And I think the, the story of Job helps us begin to at least understand some of it. Uh, next week, we're going to continue to take a look at uh, Job. He, and he says some amazing things about life uh, beyond the grave. Just remarkable things. We're going to take a look at that next week. But in the meantime, I hope you have a great week. And uh, let me pray for us as we're dismissed. And now, Lord, I pray that as your people leave the building, as the church goes back out into the world to our families, our friends, our, our neighborhoods, our jobs, our schools, wherever life takes us this week, Lord, I pray whether, whether we experience good things or hard things, um, triumphs or suffering, uh, through it all that we would say we trust you. Um, naked we came into the world and naked we leave. Um, and we'll praise your name no matter what. Give us the strength to do that, I ask. May your hand of peace and strength and protection rest on your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.